Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> What's going on, man? Hi, guy. Yeah. Yeah, the team. Loveline, man. You guys remember us from back in the day? Well, we're doing a pod, and we're doing it every day. And we've been doing it for a while. And if you, if I hear one more time, people say, God, I loved you and Adam together on Loveline. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're doing a podcast. Will you please just join us at the Adam and Dr. Drew Show, please? Right. com. It's a great show. Come on now. Only on Podcast One. That's us. Adam and Dr. Drew Show. Just like the old days. Doctor's orders. Oh, <laughs> oh man, you're funny. Yep. All right. Let's go save some babies. Let's do it. Dr. Drew Podcast. Remember to support the people that support us. Check out the swinging sounds on the uh, drdrew.com slash music. Is that where we have That's that? Right. Yes. And uh, do uh, check out the other pods we have there at Drew.com. We appreciate it. We appreciate you supporting us. And uh, appreciate you welcoming my next guest, my friend Richard Blade. Richard, how are you, man? I am doing great, Drew. And it's an okay. honor to be on your podcast. You have one of the top podcasts in the world, if you, not the number one. You understand why this guy is a great interviewer? He just would go, you are the best artist of all time. Because I love interviewing you. And, and uh, those of you from Los Angeles uh, know Richard. Everyone knows Richard. Uh, Jill Dodd, who was in the recent podcast, almost shit herself. She got to meet Richard on the outside. Uh, and so you have a new book called World in My Eyes. Tell us about it. It's something that I've been asked to write for about 10 or 12 years now, all my gigs, ever since I uh, moved back here from St. Martin after I quit K-Rock. Let's describe your career just in, for, in broad strokes for people that are in other parts okay. of the country. Yeah, sure, people abs- may have seen you on video shows on television yeah. and not knew where you came from if they weren't in Los Angeles. A- absolutely. Yeah. Well, I started off in England. I got into uh, DJing while I was at college. And I noticed it was a great way to meet girls. So That's how was, most people get into yeah. most careers. Most men get into most careers. Yeah. And it was either, do I want to teach? Do I want to try acting? Or do I want to stay with DJing? Which I was doing quite well at, uh, just in clubs. And at the time, England was a closed shop for radio. Because what part of England were you in? I was, well, I went to college at Oxford. Mm. But I grew up in the south of England, in the Laguna Beach, as I call it. Manchester of England. Beach? What's it called? No, there? it's called Torquay. Torquay. Yeah, well, where they film uh, Faulty Towers. Oh, my God. Yeah, and what, what were you studying at Oxford? I was studying English and drama. And then I stayed on for a fourth year to take a second degree. And in? that was in psychology. Oh, interesting. There you go. And, and the, but the, the, you know, to say English and drama at Oxford, you're going to have to really break it down a little bit, right? It must have been well, you know, yeah, it was a, English- a 10-year period of, of English literature or something. Well, yeah, the first yeah. year was just uh, English literature. Survey. Yeah, and then uh, we specialized in Shakespearean, Shakespearean which okay. was very good because uh, one of the years of drama was Shakespeare. So the two overlapped. So the, the study periods So Elizabethan were, and Jacobean uh, exactly, literature. And exactly. And, uh, <laughs> that, that destined you for a, a career in rock radio. I mean, Abs- absolutely. <laughs> I actually do contests now when I'm DJing live when uh, where I read lyrics from songs as Shakespeare. Oh, that's hysterical. So I'll do things like, and the lawman arrived <laughs> down the drive. And people look at me and go, I have no clue. And I'll say, do you like Duran Duran? And they go, I love Duran Duran. I said, that's from Rio. And they go, oh. So, of course. Yeah, the Shakespeare helped me out there. But I was DJing at college. And the great thing about Oxford is it's not one college or university. It's about 35. Yeah. And so uh, I had basically uh, a built-in catchment area of uh, potentially partying students that wanted to have things that are happening at night and i had access to a mobile dj unit so i started playing all the different colleges and and to be fair that would have been what 19 oh that was 1973 that was was sort of an unusual behavior then right that would have been a a novel sort of in america oh i see now that this Uh. is one of the things in the book because the book is an autobiography it goes back to the very early days uh uh, and it goes right through the college days which were very wild because uh, a lot of the students as anyone who has gone to a college or university knows students tend to drink tend to party when they're not studying and uh, inhibitions get very loose and so there's a lot of that covered in the book surprised you didn't just stay there 
Yeah, you know, I I, I would have, but I wanted to get away You're from ambitious. the rain. You're ambitious. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, and I wanted to get into radio eventually. But right. the thing was, uh, I, I played for all these university colleges, and it was so much fun. And can, can I ask something about radio, yeah. if you don't mind? Now, radio then was the BBC, right? Uh, that was it. And, and then, did you ever see the movie Pirate Radio with Seymour Philip Hoffman? Absolutely. Did and you? Was there something like that you were exposed to at the well, time? Half of that movie is correct. And the other half is Hollywood fantasy, you know, the boat going down and coming back up and all that. But uh, it was very much like that. And there's – I'm glad you asked that question because there's several chapters in the book about pirate radio. When I was 13 and 14 years old, my dad bought me this little transistor radio, and I was able to tune in to pirate radio stations like Radio Caroline and Radio London that were coming in off of the North Sea. Is that what inspired you to get into radio? Those that guys? was one of the things yeah. that inspired me to get into music, to, uh-huh. to love music, because on the BBC, you'd tune in and all you'd hear was Ray Conniff or Andy Williams. And, you know, you're 13 and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't hear. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. One more time. I'll kill myself. And, and no, that the, but the announcers were all very. Oh, they you couldn't I could, have I can't any accent. You yeah. couldn't have an accent. Wow. You had to. They, there was actually a, that was a Ray category. Conniff Jr. Exactly. BBC English. <laughs> and coming up in just a few minutes time after the news, we will be playing you something brand new from across the Atlantic. It's Andy Williams. Williams. You know, and you're like, oh, none of that is real. And so uh, these announcers on Pirate Radio were great. There was yeah. an American who I became a huge fan of called Emperor Roscoe, who um, his father actually wrote uh, and produced um, Dr. Zhivago, Michael Pasternak. Crazy. Yeah, and I became friends with him. He lives in the valley. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so they were my inspiration. And so slowly I, I said to my dad when I was leaving college, dad and mom, I said, I don't want to get a regular job i think i want to be a dj i'm so glad you've written this book because it's not just your history it's a history of radio Ab- and music and absolutely i've yeah. tried to make it like that and every song and culture really yeah right down to it yeah every song is named after every chapter is named after a song mm. so children of the revolution which is named after a t-rex song is about the kids that grew up listening to pirate radio and how pirate radio itself was that revolution and how finally the British government caved in and they dismantled the entire lineup of the BBC, changed the names of all of the services. They had the light program, BBC's light program. <laughs> uh, they, that became Radio 1, uh. which was the pop channel, and then Radio 2, and then Radio 3 and Radio 4. They got away with B- BBC News, BBB, BBC Big Band. It was all gone because Pirate Radio overturned it in 67. so interesting. And it was an amazing time. And if it was the Beatles and Pirate Radio that changed everything. And so when you got here, did you – to America, I guess California, you came yeah. Yeah. Did you – was radio already – Different here? Did you? Did you oh think, yeah, did you yeah. Think you came upon something extraordinary? No, I knew that radio was different yeah. in America, and I actually worked for two and a half years in Europe before mm. I came to America. I toured Europe as a club DJ, and one of the things that um, I kept running into was American servicemen because I, uh, when I DJed in Germany, there was a lot of American servicemen. When I DJed in the city that's the farthest north in the world, which is Tromsø, five hundred miles north of the Arctic Circle. Where, were, what country is that in? And Norway. Norway. It was full of American servicemen because uh, this was 1976. Oh, yeah, huge base. Staring because, down uh, Russia well, or something. That's the way the yeah. Russians were going to come in. Oh, and these American servicemen could not have been any greater. These guys were incredible. And they would come to my club because uh, they were allowed to get off base and party with the local girls. And they became really friendly with me, and we would go out on a half track, and we'd go through these incredible snow drifts because this was January and February in the oh Arctic God. Circle. Oh no, my God. you know, and it, uh, we would go on the base, and I'd watch movies. And one of the movies I watched was called "My Name Is Trinity," yeah. and it opened. And, and to set the scene, it was minus forty-two degrees outside. It just, I mean, ice cold. And we got off this half track and we all ran in and we literally pulled on camouflage sleeping bags to sit in to keep us warm in this mess hut. And we watched this movie and it opened with blazing sunshine and this horse uh, towing one of these Indian kind of uh, support beams, you know, like a papoose or something behind with a guy sleeping on it through this hot desert. And I thought, I want to go there. And then these words came up. 
California. <laughs> and right there and then in my brain, I thought, that's where I'm going to go one of these days. But for another year and a half, I worked in Europe and uh, toured the clubs and it got, it was wild. I mean, like summer in Spain was something that Caligula dreamed up. And it's all in the book. When I wrote the book, I said to my wife, I said, I've got to be honest. <laughs> and she said, honey, everybody's got a history. Oh, and I wow. said, I know. And then she read the book and she said, I didn't realize I was married to a man whore, <laughs> but it was really an amazing time. And then finally, I mean, I was doing incredibly well in Europe and I had a great agent. I played all across the country, but I had to be true to myself. I promised, I promised America. Mm. And so in November of 1976, I flew over to America. And by pure coincidence, this might not mean anything to the listeners, but it will to you because you know this guy very well. Mm. I landed at 6.45 p.m. on November 16th, 1976. At 7.20 p.m., completely unknown to me, and I didn't meet him for another three years, Swedish Eagle landed. Oh, crazy. We were 40 minutes apart. How crazy is that? That's weird. And we've was friends to this day. Oh, my God. Yeah, I haven't seen Eagle in years. Is he doing good? He's doing great. Oh, yeah, so he follows me on the air on Sirius. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Too so, weird. Yeah, I know. All right, so let's bring it, let's, for, again, people around the country, let's bring it forward. So right. you ended up not at K-Rock, but you got no. there eventually. Yeah, I, I started doing, uh, I tried to get into radio, and uh, this, I was turned away oh, by... Oh, let F- me just tell you, for Swedish Swedish Eagle, Chris, uh, was Gary back there still? Yeah. Swedish Eagle was the original, one of the original hosts of Loveline back in 1982 or 83. Yeah, so absolutely. Before you? With no, Scott well, he was No, he was there when I got there. He was the host. Well, he, him, poor man, then eventually Scott Mason, yeah. Rick Carroll said, you got you got to babysit these guys, Scott. Yeah. At least that was Scott's version of the story. How much love line was there before you arrived? I don't really know. How many, well, there was, was there op- six months or there so? There was open line, which yeah. was Scott Mason, and then it mutated with, uh, with poor Eagle. Poor man and Eagle yeah. get into love line. Yeah. And I, I, they needed to make a commu- – my understanding is I got involved because they needed to make it a community service show. And Absolutely. They needed, they needed some sort of – somebody knew something. Yeah. And I was like, why me? What are you talking uh, well, about? Well, I think Scott Mason was so worried about the station getting a lawsuit because, you know, medical advice was being given by Eagle. There was that, that's right. There was yeah. that. And, and they needed to satisfy some more community service hours, yeah. I think. And so so I, there I was, a fourth-year medical student going, okay, I guess I can do this. And and really was – what maybe you don't remember is that HIV and AIDS, which we weren't didn't have either term yet at that right. point, was really motivating me to, to get in there because nobody was talking to young people about what was coming well nobody again jumping ahead i remember very clearly in uh either very late 1987 or the beginning of 1988 we were in burbank at the new offices yeah and uh, they called a meeting which you headed up they'd asked you to talk about to talk about aids and you had the whiteboard and (laughs) you showed all the cellular how the the cells would interact and and you asked for questions i don't remember that at all i kind of remember i i think i even asked you about um, if if the cells were being attacked in that way, is it was it similar to cancer? Mm. And I think you said if ever they found a cure to cancer, that probably would be the gateway to a cure to AIDS or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah because there it's it's a similar genetic kind of manipulation. See, I remember everything you say because wow, if Drew says scary. it, it's the gospel. It scares me, Richard. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> be careful. Well, Check it back with me to make yeah. sure I still stand by it. And you also, uh, I went to you uh, when my morning show partner. Um, was having a problem with his drinking with Raymond mm. and he'd had his leg shattered about four years before and it hadn't been treated because K-Rock had no insurance at the time Jesus. and he was walking with a terrible limb. I, f- I remember him with a cane. That's yeah, I and I, I asked you about it. I said, he's drinking so much and he's in, in really bad pain and you said that the bones, if they don't knit, they grind together yeah. from the impact and it can cause... He had a distal tip fib, as I remember, and it's yeah. a really hard area to get to heal. Yeah, and it was because of you that he got uh, got, he got helped because I, 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 I took him outside and I said, that's it, Raymond. You either stop drinking or you uh, you get off the show, one of the two. He and Raymond has struggled with his sobriety ever since. And yeah. But, but he's very serious about it when he's yeah. serious about it. It's but, like, like everybody with addiction. You're good when you're good and you have trouble sometimes. But yeah. the great thing was, Drew, because of you, he got off uh, – 
a long enough period of time to get that operation to oh, get yeah, his leg rebroken yes, and reset and he oh, walks without a limp so ladies and gentlemen yeah. got to drew in the house biggest fan see this so, again so i brought richard in here yeah. so let's talk to you so you made it to california yeah i made it to california i went to all the radio stations and was told i'd never work with this accent in town and uh that was it that was but what I, year was that that was 77 oh, this is before 78 the, before the next english invasion, the second wave and 1980 yeah. every I, I didn't give up but i started doing mobiles and my mobile djing really took off and i was doing a lot of parties and i had a huge breakthrough when a uh, a caterer saw me at a gig and she said i've got a client who would like to meet you um can you can we uh, caravan to her house we'll meet in malibu so i said okay and uh, we met up at um by the pier and then we went up to paradise cove and went up into the hills mm. and there was a compound up there of three houses and we parked and i got out of the car and this woman was waiting for us and she walked up and the caterer said this is miss streisand oh and, my god and i was like hi and she wasn't on my radar you didn't know who, who, oh, I, knew she, who she, I knew who she was, but I would have been more impressed if I'd have met Anita Ward. Uh, you you know, because I was a disco boy. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. I was disco Dick Shepherd at oh, the time. Wow! So I knew she was a singer and an actress and famous, but I wasn't blown away. You weren't impressed. Yeah. And um, we, we shook hands. We talked about uh, her son's bar mitzvah, uh, Jason Gould, and so um, by the within thirty minutes, she'd taken me around the compound between. Um, this big paddock area between the three homes and so i did the bar mitzvah and it was incredible and everyone was there you know oh. david geffen was there and larry hagman and donna summer and elliot gold ryan o'neill because she'd just done um that boxing film with him and uh, neil diamond they, she'd just done you don't bring me flowers and then suddenly the day after or two days after on the monday my phone starts ringing and jason gould was the oldest kid in his class in uh, uh, Sherman Oaks and Encino to have a bar mitzvah. And all the kids were Jewish. Oh, so you had so all the bar mitzvahs. All the mothers said, oh, well, oh, if you can do Barbara Streisand's son. Oh, oh, oh. So suddenly I'm doing wow. all these bar mitzvahs, and then the phone starts ringing, and it's uh, CBS calling, and they say, uh, we want you to do a rap party. Have you heard who uh, heard about J.R. Ewing? And it was like, wow. So I got to do um, the rap party for Dallas. And suddenly I'm doing all these celebrity parties. How I fun. did one cool. for Shaja Gabor, and she had a stilt house in Hollywood. And I was in the downstairs game level that they cleared out. And all the guests were upstairs. And I'm sitting there. I'm all set up. And this one kid comes down by himself because he didn't want to be. He was shy. And he asked if he could go through my music. And I said, sure. And he pulled out two songs. And then he said, could you play them so I could dance? And I put them on. And sitting there in this room, just me and Michael Jackson was just oh, amazing. Oh, my God. Did you know it was Michael Jackson? Oh, yeah. I knew it was Michael Jackson. Oh, and, my God. And I liked him because of the disco, but he wasn't yet Michael Jackson. Right. That was about to come. And then he said, do you have a cassette player? And I said, yeah. And he went out to the car and got a cassette. And he'd been just been in the studio the last three weeks with Quincy Jones recording off the wall. Oh. And he had me play the tracks for him. And we were the, uh, just watching him work out moves was amazing. And then as the party finished, and by the way, my all time favorite actor, Sean Connery, was at that party show. So I thought, well, that was a great party. Great experience. Amazing. And then I get the call from Epic Records. Michael wants you to do the um platinum award party for destiny which was the jackson's album they just left motown as the jackson five and became the jacksons with right. the big s with what, like right. a five on epic yeah so i did that at C city national bank with uh, michael and that was on the front page of the times had me djing dick shepherd djing for and suddenly i was doing all of michael's private parties and it was unbelievable i go over to havenhurst where his, his house on havenhurst in uh um, Studio City and it was uh, Encino and uh, DJ his parties and it was just amazing getting to know him and Marlon and Randy and and everyone there. Do you have a perspective on what happened to Michael? Yes, I do. And can you share it? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. And it also reflects on a number of other celebrities, including Dave Garn from Depeche Mode, whose his suicide attempt is fe featured in my book. Michael's wasn't a suicide attempt, obviously, but I think what happens is when you become very successful, and in Michael's case, there's no one more successful. I mean, he, he was the Beatles. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone says, who's going to be the next Beatles? 
this young black kid yeah. was the next Beatles. Yeah. I think when people around you know you have a problem, if I have a problem, you know, I, I banged my leg the other day and Chris has said, it's not healing right. You go and see the doctor, honey. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So she'll tell me that. But if you're so successful, people around you won't speak up because they're so scared they're going to you're going to say shut up that's right. you're fired that, that happened to Deepak Chopra yeah. with Michael it did Deepak went stepped up to him and said dude you have a you have a I, I don't know if you're aware but you clearly have an opiate problem that afternoon dismissed never spoken to again yeah. and so when you're an addict addicts kind of behave that way and that's why people probably sense it yeah. Yeah, you and that's, they're so into keeping their own job yeah. and their own money well, flow. Well, it's the yeah. access to the celebrity. Right. You know? It's like being around a deity or something, yeah. which is sad. Oh, it's sad. And, and then the doctors play into it, too. They're like, oh, this special person wants me. Oh, I'll give him special. I'll come yeah. right over right now. And that's, that's, you're already off the rail at that point. Yeah, uh, and rail. that's so wrong yep. because you, you, yep. you have to look at someone as a human being it's in the end. Pure, not in the end. Start to finish. Yeah. Period. But I mean, so, at least the physician part. The no, I, part. absolutely. You yeah. know, but for a regular person, yeah. it takes a little bit of a gut check because you are wanting to keep your job and yeah, everything I like that. I get it. I understand yeah. that because the reality is if they are too confrontative, they will be dismissed. Yeah. That's true. And, and, and the problem is, you know, on the business side of it, the, the Dave Gahan reference um, was very much like Kurt Cobain. A record company, nine times out of ten, would rather an artist die than leave the label. Because if they leave the label, they might take their publishing with them, they might take their music with them, mm-hmm. and they lose the entire revenue stream. If an, I, I, This sounds so callous and so ridiculous, but unfortunately it's true. They would rather the artist die and keep the rights than get the artist, risk losing the artist by saying, no more until you go to rehab, no more until you get cleaned up. And that's what they should do. They should step up. And they didn't. In the case of uh, Dave, many years later, 1994, they didn't. They've gone from? Depeche Mode. And I was on the air when he uh, had the suicide attempt. And so I stepped up and, you know, we got all kinds of crap being flown at us uh, by by the record company, including uh, Lawson. Why? Well... I was on the air. You spoke honestly I was, about I was filling in for Kevin and Bean, who were on vacation. And it was a Thursday morning. And about 6.30, Michelle Gonzalez, who I think you might remember sure. my intern, Michelle came in and she said, uh, I've got a, a paramedic on the phone line. Jeez. And uh, we had digital recording at the time. We had that little white digital recorder, you yeah. might remember. And I recorded this phone call. And he'd just taken Dave into Cedar sinai for mm. multiple lacerations on both wrists. Mm. So... I said, thanks so much. And he goes, I thought you should know. And so I called Cedar Sinai and I said, my name's Mike Gahn and I'm Dave's brother. Mm. You know, can you know, I, th- I understand he's in ICU and they put me through. And uh, they said that they, he wouldn't, have, he was undergoing treatment, that he did have lacerations. They didn't have, um, they couldn't say whether it was self inflicted, but it seemed that way. But the prognosis uh, at the time was fair mm. he'd lost a lot of blood but they said they had the best people in the world working on him at cedar sinai and they hoped he would recover so i just went on the air and i said dave's tried to kill himself i mm. said and this is the second time he'd done it in four weeks mm. i said something has to be done i said we can't lose this guy and then a record company exec from warner brothers was listening and he called up and he's like what the fuck are you doing and all this mm. and i said look this was off the air i, I said you know, Dave's in trouble, and I got this call, and he goes, no, it was just an accident. He fell over. He cut himself. Uh, it didn't happen that oh, way. And, I, and then I remembered about Kurt Cobain, and I remembered about a friend of mine in a band called Felony who'd killed himself that I could have helped, and I didn't. Mm. And it, I just lost it but kept control. And I, I, I said to him, you would rather lose your artist and have them die than lose the music. I said, just... Eight weeks ago, you were looking for someone who you couldn't find, and you said that you searched high and low, and two days later, they were found dead on their apartment floor with their head blown off, and that was Kurt Cobain. I said, how hard were you looking when he was in his own apartment? I said, I will not stop. And he said, well, in that case, we're going to take K-Rock off the air. And a minute later, the phone rings, and it's uh, the hotline. It's Gene Sandblum. Kevin Weatherly was on vacation. And I played Gene the two calls, and Uh Gene said... You better be right about this. He said, 
but keep going. Wow. And uh, at the time, K-Rock was worth $600 million, you know, the license. And I kept going. And then, How could they take K-Rock off the air? Well, they were going to do lawsuits. Oh. And then he called me back, the record company executive, and said, I'm going to slap you with a personal uh, a libel Jesus. suit and this, that, and the other. And we scary. got cease and desist coming. It was scary. And I just kept going. Huh. And then uh, I said, when he called back the last time, I played him the call from the uh, paramedic because I hadn't played that on the air. I wanted to keep the guy's identity secret. Cause, mm-hmm. you know, and then I played. I said, and I've recorded all of your calls because you've been calling in. So let me play back your call next and then the paramedics call. And he was just, he knew that it was up. And then uh, we got no lawsuit come in. But for the rest of the day, we had Entertainment Weekly come mm-hmm. by. We had, uh, I mean, Entertainment Tonight come by, USA Today, LA Times. Everyone came by. I was at the station until about 3.30 in the Did afternoon. Did you tell that story about the record company? Oh, yeah. That's all oh, in the book. And then uh, 72 hours later, because Dave was kept in a, on a suicide watch for yeah. 72 hours, uh, I met with him when he was released. And I had more than 2,000 letters that had been sent to the station, which I gave to him. And the, the follow-up to this was I saw Dave in May when they did the preview to the Global Spirit Tour, and they played at Hollywood Forever. And Dave came up to me and hugged me, and he said, I'm still alive, Richard. I'm mm. still alive. Mm. And those were his words. And Krista was standing right there. It was all I could do not to cry. Mm. Was he sober now? Or oh, he's yeah. very sober. Oh, yeah. He rarely ever goes to an after party. He has well. a minder that literally takes him from the concerts to the limo. Fletch will go, and Martin will go to the after party, but not Dave. He, he's got his family. He's got Good. his career and his life. So God bless him. Yeah, it, it, it's... The music industry is a tough road for people with these certain mental health oh. issues. Very, I mean, we just lost Chris and, yeah. and Chester. And like, oh, my God. Um, I want to go back to you, though. I want to yeah, stay no, with your yeah. story because this is fascinating. I did not know the big backstory. I did not know all this. Yeah. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. A lot of times that is not the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they are not available. Not with True Car. Of course, I'm talking about True Car. You get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by True Car, but pricing from an actual dealer. And not just any dealer, but a True Car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Yeah, you know, and we talk about all the time. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. Next, True Car, TrueCar.com or True Car app will show you what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. Now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. Over 3 million cars have been sold to True Car users by the True Car Certified Dealer Network. Over 3,000 True Car Certified Dealers are available nationwide. You will get to work directly with a True Car Certified Dealer that you may contact with. And True Car users are more likely to enjoy a faster, better buying experience when they contact a True Car Certified Dealer. And on average, you can expect to save over $3,000 off MSRP. Once you register, you'll see a real price on actual inventory. Hook up with that True Car certified dealer. Have a better buying experience. True Car, go to the truecar.com or True Car app. Do what I'm telling you. Uh, we haven't gotten to K-Rock yet in, no. your, in your chronology. So how do we get from, from bar mitzvahs to K-Rock? Okay, so I could not – I was making a lot of money as a mobile DJ and doing these high-end bar mitzvahs and celebrity parties. Um, I was probably making forty thousand a year back in seventy nine. I mean, which was great. Young you know, man, I'm a young man. It was fantastic. It was, it was great. And but I couldn't get into radio, and I was being turned away by everyone. And so uh, I, I didn't know what to do. And then finally, on K West, which is now Power one hundred and six, but it was K West back in the day, an ad came on for a station promo looking for the best unknown DJ. So. I said to my girlfriend at the time, Katie Manor, I said, Katie, I'm going to go for this. And I was already making demos. Was Katie tapes. doing radio at the time? No, she was. Do you, are you still in touch with Katie? Oh, yeah, all the time. So Katie, funny. Please say hi for me. Yeah, I'm, I've been so lucky. Apart from one person, I'm in touch with everybody that I've worked with over the years. Fantastic. So, you know, it, it's great. And uh, Jed came to my gig 10 well, days and, ago. And to so. be fair, uh, Carole is doing a documentary about K-Rock, which yeah, uh, when I it was comes, the first one to do. I haven't done my yeah. interview yet. I don't know why, but how's it coming together? It's coming together great. It's not going to be one documentary. It's going to be a multi-part. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hell of a story. Six, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I always I've said this is a story. It's got to be told. of it getting bigger, but uh, 
six is what we're planning on. But you can talk to Nate uh, after this interview because he's going to stop by to say hello to Richard. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I, I was the first person to do the interview because Jay called me up from the morning show and he said, if you don't do it, we can't do it. Well, and I said, you should know. I'll also, I I was the first sizzle they did. And I said, I said you're, they wanted it to be all about the bands and stuff, which is interesting. I said, no, it's about the air staff. Yeah. You don't understand. these. You guys – uh, that's why Jill Dodd crapped herself when you went yeah. because it was it was I don't know it was a magical time that eighties that, that period it was it was lightning in a bottle and the air staff was a was the key driver of that you even see people like John Logic and Robert Roll oh, and guys like that ab- absolutely well, please you say hi for me I haven't seen these guys in thirty yeah, jo- years John runs a uh, surf and skate shop now up in Oregon oh my so, god that's super yeah. crazy and. and you're absolutely right, because when I listened to BBC Radio 1, as much as I loved hearing the Beatles and Roy Wood and Wings and things like that, it was the DJs when I could meet the DJs. Yeah, that oh, was, my gosh, because yeah. they were the ones bringing me the music. I, I gotta, so they, yeah, they I were the story. You, when, when I first got to K-Rock, I, I thought I was walking amongst giants. I really yeah. did. I was like, oh, these are the people that – they are K-Rock. These, yeah. you, you, it's, it's the – I don't know. It was the celebrity brand of the music yeah. locally, kind of thing. They're the ones that you yeah. relate, you connected to. Uh, well, I got a little intimate. story like that when I first snuck into K Rock when I was working at KNAC, which I'll get to. I know we're out of order here, but uh, I was doing some ads for K Rock for a club I was working at, and Mike Evans came in and he goes, "You got an English accent?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "Could you cut some spots for me, some promos? Could you say?" And he was doing the morning show K Rock yeah, with yeah. Raymond, who became yeah. your partner. You listen to Romano and Evans, the hose. On K Rock, and I was like, "Sure, I can do that." And I say in the book, inside me, the fanboy was screaming, "Get his autograph!" Oh, you were already a fan. Of, you were a fan of character before oh, you got there. Absolutely, yeah. That's so, so interesting. So anyway, I hear this ad on K West, which is a rock station, at looking for the best unknown DJ. So. I put together a demo, and I did a little, like a remix of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, and I put together this eight-minute demo, and I sent it in, and just hoped and prayed and kept my fingers crossed, and then J.J. Jackson, who went on to MTV, yes, uh, he was making the announcement at night as to the winners, and I remember looking at Katie and saying, winners? It's meant to be winner, <laughs> and he announced one name, and it wasn't me. And then he announced the second, and it was me. Wow. And I was like, wow, I got one hour on the air and $1,000 in cash as being the best unknown DJ. So I went in, and it was JJ who was doing my hour with me. And I became friends with him until he died. You know, it was he was a wonderful guy. And uh, These we, are all names that people would know from MTV. From MTV, later, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I did the one hour on the air playing uh, ACDC Back in Black, which had just come out. And um, like Molly Hatchet and 38 Special and all these bands. Oh, my God. And, uh, You're doing the Stern After Show in a few weeks. Yeah. You've you got to talk to Gary about all this music. He's, he's oh, there yeah. raptured by this stuff. So. I think I'm going to take him some pieces of vinyl. Oh. I might even uh, take him nine. Oh. <laughs> give him nine pieces of vinyl. <laughs> nine. <laughs> so uh, – um, I made uh, JJ made me a scoped cassette, which means cut all the music was cut out. It was just my intros back and forth, and I sent them out the next day to Santa Barbara and Palm Springs, San Francisco, San Diego, Bakersfield, and Fresno. And the day after that, I got a phone call from Fresno, uh, from uh, Bakersfield, from a guy called Dave Lawrence, and he said, "Hey, uh, would you like to come out to Bakersfield and talk?" So. I drove out to Bakersfield, sat down with him. He said, we've been looking for an evening guy and music director. And I was like, holy crap, I'm a disco DJ. I didn't know rock. You know, I'd had to put this format together. And I said, okay, you know, I'd love to do it. It'd be great. I said, "Uh, what's your criteria for adding music? He said, well, we're a different kind of rock station. He said, Stairway to Heaven is too mellow for us. He said, "Uh, this is what we like. And he took out Ted Nugent's double live uh, Gonzo, and he put the needle down in the middle of Wang Dang Sweet Poontang. And he said, that's as mellow as we get. So I said, I'll do it for a year. I'd love to. And then Dave left after five months, and they made me program director at Morning wow. Drive. Fantastic. And at the end of the year, Katie and I were breaking up. Wait, how did you and Katie meet? Uh, we met at a club. Okay. I was DJing in San Peter at a club called The Plank, uh, the Plank House. And um, Katie and I were breaking up. We were both young. It was both our faults, you know. Yeah. No, no blame attached, and so we've been friends ever since. She has how many kids now? Two. She is three. Three, and kids. they got to be. Yeah, they, they've all 20s. gone through college. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So 
Uh, the age you can is where we're talking about here. Yeah, so I, I said to her after one incredible argument that we had, I, I said, look, that, that's it. You know, we can't go at each other like this. It's not healthy. Um, at the end of the month, either you leave or I leave. I said, I don't mind which. I'll, I'll make You can be your decision. So at the end of the month, she hadn't said anything. So I went to the uh, owners of the radio station and said, I'm leaving. And they said, you don't like it here? And I said, no, I don't. I like you guys, and I love radio, but I told you I'm, I'm going to go back to L.A., and, and that's my dream. My destiny. Yeah, and they said, well, we got a station in San Luis Obispo, and we just got approved for an Arbitron rating. Would you fly over there and see us? I said, what do you mean fly? And they said, we'll fly you over in a plane if you'll go and check out this station in this little market because it was a smaller market than Bakersfield, so it was a step down. But the ratings were important to them, so – Wow, I've been in a private plane, so I flew over, and I knew I was going to say no. I, I was going to go back to L.A., but the station was cool, and uh, they'd brought in a big consultant from New York, a, a DJ from, like, K100 or something, you know, Mark Driscoll, very talented radio, guy. Radio was a burgeoning business. Though. Oh, it was, very yeah. Very different And it was now. the first rating period. Yeah, so very different. Yeah, so I walked through the town, this little town. It's beautiful. Season. Oh, yeah, and it was really nice. But every girl was smoking hot smoking hot so we're sitting down for lunch and i'm getting ready to tell mark thank you for having me but i'm gone and i I, we're just chatting about all kinds of things and he's deliberately very smartly staying away from the business side of it and i can i ask you a question because what i said did i see an inordinate number of good-looking girls when we were walking down higara street to this restaurant and he said yeah he said, you should wait till college is back when Cal Poly is in session. He said, it's like an endless parade of supermodels. So I looked at Mark and I was thinking in my brain, I'm thinking, he wants me to be the morning drive DJ and program director of the only rock station on the Central Coast hmm. that all these girls are going to be listening to. And then this voice says, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and I turned around and it was me. <laughs> so... For six months, I just had the most amazing time. I dated one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life uh, while I was in San Luis Obispo. It's actually a picture of her because we used her in the ad for the radio station that I shot in a a Z93 jacket where she's – she was wearing a bikini, but it looks like she's naked. She's pulling it down. And – so it was an amazing time. And we went through this first ratings period, and the uh, the company, Rogers Brandon, was the name of the radio company. They wanted us to be number two in the market. That was their dream because there was a huge AM called K-Sly that had just a massive following. But we did this promotion. We went to the Datsun dealership before it was Nissan, Datsun, and we got a Z to give away. And so it was two forty Z. Yeah, it was two eighty. Two eighty. Yeah, big time. Yeah, so it was winner Z from Z ninety three, the music FM KZOZ. So we put the bumper stickers up, and we we went as hard as we could with uh, the promo. And then uh, we did the giveaway, and the winner was actually there when we drew the name. It was fantastic. And then the ratings came out, and I was in the studio when the the call came in from Bakersfield, where the headquarters were. And uh, it was Rogers Brander, not Roger, but his last name is his first name is has a plural on it. Always confused me. Rogers Brander's on the phone, and I said, "How do we do?" And he goes, "We didn't come second. And I'm like, "Oh crap! Oh crap!" I said, "What did case I get?" And he goes, "They got a nine. I was like, "Wow!" I said, "What do we get?" And he goes, "We got a twenty-eight. Oh my god! I was like, "What?" That's crazy. And he starts screaming. He goes, "We're number one." He goes, "Get on the air right now and say number one music station in the Central wow. Coast." And fantastic. And so he said, "Everything's going to be great, and this is what we're planning." I said, "Wait, this is what you're planning." I'm leaving. Oh. I told you I was only here for the ratings period. So wow. with those numbers, I went back to L.A. and I got a job doing overnights at KNAC. And then from KNAC, I jumped to K-Rock by doing a, uh, a commercial. And the music had changed right then. Oh, the music had changed. When I was yeah. at KZOZ, my dad was sending me records and music from England because I was still on the mailing list from a lot of the record companies because of being a DJ so in England. you got England. exposed to what was going yeah, on. Yeah, and I got to add songs like Tainted Love from Soft Cell yeah. and uh, Don't You Want Me from Human League and Just Can't Get Enough from Depeche Mode, along with Journey tracks from Escape and Stevie Nicks, Edge of 17. So we were playing 
all kinds of stuff because we had college students up there. Yeah. And so when I went to KNEC, that was a continuation of that. And then, of course, at KROT, that was the epitome right. of what was new. And, and and you became associated with that. And, oh, and, yeah. Yeah, and that I, became your moniker. And I was... I embraced it, you yeah. know, I, I, and I still do. I mean, I, I actually love that music. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, I don't think it's – it's now finally starting to have its own it, it, brand, I guess would be the way to right. say it, where it really exists as something. Oh, that's that period. That's yep. that period. I get it. I get what that is. And it still needs a story attached to that. So I'm hoping this documentary sort of helps because it was a – Again, it was a moment. It was a moment was. of history. And it was fast. It went away pretty fast too, <laughs> because the the grunge thing that followed was so different. Oh, it completely. Was, I always thought the eighties were much more of a celebration period. Like mm-hmm. It felt like all very celebratory. I don't know the music really continues to evoke that, but that's what it was. People, we, we, the seventies were so down and depressed economically, and all of a sudden this Reagan era emerged, and people were starting to celebrate, whether they agreed with him or not. There just was an exuberance around that period. Oh, it's happy it, music. Right? That's why yeah. kids love it still to this day. Yeah, I, it's happy music, right? You know, I'll, I'll DJ uh, parties live all the time. I, I do two or three a week, and when kids come up, they'll ask for current music. You know, you've got Dustin Timberlake or DJ Khaled or something like that. And in the same breath, they'll say, do you have aha or do you have the safety dance? No one ever comes up, has ever, no kid has ever come up to me and said, do you have Hooverstank? Right. No one has right. said that, you know, or right. Nickelback. You know, I, they just don't ask for those right. kind of songs. It's, it's funny. I heard the Thompson Twins today for uh-huh. a long time. And I thought, wow. I mean, it's so evocative. It just mm-hmm. evokes a ton in my head of music and cultural kinds of things. And it, and it's unique. There's nothing else like it. It no. stands out. It's like, boom, there it was. Um, now, and then you became the morning disc, you became the morning right. show of K-Rock, and then you developed multiple video shows on television as yeah. a result. Did you do MTV? Did, no. Because Lewis went over to MTV, and yeah. everyone went over to MTV from K-Rock. Yeah, that was in and, the beginning of the 90s yeah. that they, they all migrated with Andy Schoen yes. over to MTV. I'd applied for MTV in 81 when I was in Bakersfield and didn't hear anything back. It was crickets. <laughs> but uh, Video 1 and Video B and MV3. That was you. Were, that was me. That Your was shows. broadcast. And those were great and then i got to do some movies like girls just want to have fun and spellcaster and 101 with depeche mode and stuff so it was great you know i I would love to have done mtv but if i had it probably would have been the end of my career because i'd have had to have left k-rock and gone to new york and for a long period of time until sirius came along people like alan hunter and martha quinn and mark goodman and nina blackwood were working but you know, like Mark Goodman for a while just worked part time at Kerat, and he's a great friend of mine. You know, and and that's not what he deserved. He was much better than that, but he was kind of overshadowed by the monster that MTV became. So in a way, I was lucky that no, I, didn't I agree. Get in. It was not. It was not. Would not have been a great career movie. Right. You don't didn't own anything. You really right. You know, the MTV VJs were they didn't have the same connection that the radio discharged strangely you know what i mean well my old agent eric gold who went on to create um the uh wayans brothers show in living color and he handled jim carrey and j-lo incredibly successful guy i know there's pictures of me we had the fly girls on love years ago and there's a picture of me standing next to j-lo i'm like really i don't remember that but okay yeah exactly (laughs) you know and i uh, uh, but she Eric was, a fly was great. Living color for people yeah. remember. Yeah, he, he uh, Eric also represented um, an actor. I don't know what happened to him. He starred in a movie called Bachelor Party. Something Hanks as well. <laughs> and I remember ha- me, Raymond, and poor man all having breakfast with him. Dan. With Tom Hanks. Yeah, outside of Chippendales at the Denny's next oh, to Chippendales. How crazy. But Eric uh, also represented Nina Blackwood. Uh, and Nina was famous for her hair at the time on MTV. She had, you right. know, that, that bleach blonde hair. And I suppose she was kind of like the Khaleesi of the time, you know. But uh, there was a shampoo company, um, like a Prell or a Per or one of those companies, that offered her a quarter of a million dollars, which is huge money in 83, oh, 84, yeah. to do a network series of ads. And MTV wouldn't let her do it. Oh, see. Because they controlled her. Yeah. And it would yeah. have been great. Oh. They could have said Nina Blackwood from MTV or just Nina Blackwood. But. Couldn't do it. And Eric was like, oh, these bastards, you know. So he said, you're better off not being there. Oh, my God. So it was tough. And and you left K-Rock when? I left K-Rock in April of 2000. 
And I left because I wanted to go to the Caribbean. Uh, my wife and I, in 97, bought a house in... You and really I, love scuba diving, then. Yeah, I have to say this with a deep breath and much, much sadness. We bought a house in St. Martin. Oh, wow. And some of our best friends still live in St. Martin. They okay? They have made it through the hurricane. The second one. <laughs> uh, yeah, and lost everything. Oh, my God. Yeah, the dive boats that we had, all three dive boats, and then also this floating snorkel platform, all gone. Uh. And they, when I spoke to uh, Bobby, the names of Bobby and Whitney, not Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston, just Weird. happens to be that. Yeah, yeah, we spoke to them, and Bobby is an old salt. He's in his 70s now. Mm. And he said that every boat in St. Martin, every boat went down. Mm. And St. Martin has a huge lagoon. It's one of the few islands in the Caribbean that actually has a lagoon. You know, normally you think lagoon South Pacific, but it actually has a lagoon. And that's where all the uh, mega yachts go and shelter. And every boat went down. He said that uh, the words that in the second storm or in the first in the one? first, uh. yeah, in Irma. And the the words that they've used are devastation and uh, war zone. Yeah, my so, wife's been preoccupied with it. We've both been down there a couple of times yeah. to feel like we're not doing enough. Like it's, it's not not enough is being made of the Virgin Island devastation yeah. because both the particularly the British Virgin Islands just oh. ruined. It, it, it's it's tragic. Because yeah, we, and now we're looking at Mexico and Houston and Florida. But but you got to we got to put a little focus down there. They really yeah. need help. Richard Branson is trying to talk about it because you know Necker Island was devastated, but he doesn't care about having aid for Necker Island because he's spending his own money to help everyone there. And God bless him. He's, he's got a great book as well, Losing My Virginity. He's very altruistic when it comes to a cause. But he wants other people to help the other islands and the other islanders affected. And it's, you know, it's, it's devastating. But we, we bought the house in St. Martin in 97 with the goal of leaving K-Rock and moving there. I, I remember discussing this with you at... Somebody's wedding. Kevin and Bean were officiating. Right. Whose wedding was that? I, I remember. Oh, I think it was uh, mm. was it Lightning's or was it Bean's wedding? And Kevin was it was it there was a, yeah. like a, in, in a theater sort of on Wilshire, right? Right. Wiltern, yep, I think, yep. or something. Like yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you, you were, were in like, the lobby. We were talking. Yeah. About, yeah. You were like very excited about going out. It sounded yeah. glorious. It oh, sounded, and and it was. It was. See, I grew, uh, in the book is a list. And at the top of the list was I want to live somewhere warm and sunny, which is California or anywhere warm and sunny. And the number two was I want to dive every day like Jacques Cousteau because I grew up making my own wetsuits and snorkeling and diving. And then I learned to dive with the RAF when I was at college because I was captain of the swim team. Oh and I, I put together the Royal, the Royal Air Force coming in. You've lived like four lifetimes, It Richard. was It was I, great. It was, I only was part of one of them. Uh, I didn't know these other three. Oh, no, you're a part. Of the, you're a major part. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're in the book and everything. But uh, I always wanted to teach diving. And one of my – I don't have many fears in life, but my – biggest fear is the fear of regret mm. and i have this vision of lying in a hospital bed with tubes in me looking up at that horrible white ceiling thinking why didn't i do that and there's a moment in the book when my father dies and i went into the mortuary to see his body mm. uh, i was alone Mum didn't want to go in understandably and we couldn't find my brother at the time so i went in alone and I was standing after crying and hugging his body, and it didn't feel like human. It felt no, plastic. No, no. It's very that first time, and I was standing there, and my father stood next to me for a second. It was the weirdest thing, and I'm not a religious or spiritual person. Well, I am spiritual. I'm into nature and mm. stuff like that. But my father was standing next to me, and he looked at me, and he said so clearly, "Look carefully." Because one day, that will be you, my son. So enjoy every moment. And before I could speak, he was back on the slab. Because I, I was looking at myself dead. I could see myself there. It's very powerful. And it was a moment that has stood with me for the rest of my life. When was this? That was in 1982. Oh, Ironically, God. right as my career was taken off, I'd just done the Us Festival I'd walked off stage with Raymond. We were buzzing. I'd signed to do Square Pegs on CBS. My career could not have been any hotter, I thought. This was before MV3 and then the movies. And I was in the production room, and I was editing a spot, 
And Katie leaned into the production room at K-Rock. And she said, Pat Welsh needs to speak to you. Mm. And I looked at her and I said, and I can remember it as clearly as, as yesterday, either I'm fired or my dad's dead. And she didn't say anything. She just shook her head and I knew what it was. Mm. And I walked in, the phone was off the hook. And Pat said, it's your mother, I'll leave you alone. And it was like, wow. You know, my, and that is the middle of the book. That is halfway through the book. And the second part of the book starts with part two, A.D., as in after dad, because dad was such a huge part of my life and physically looked like me. Mm. And he died young. And that's, it changed my life. Uh, it's, uh, I immediately changed everything about myself. He died of a, a heart attack at the age of 65. So I, I said from then on, okay, what can I do to not have a heart attack? Because I'm going to now play a game. And the stake is death, life and death. My dad wants me to win the game. I've got to outlive dad. And I've still got a few more months to go to before I win. Wow. So, uh, you know. Looks like you're going to be fine. Well, I hope hope Zoom right past him. You know, but so because of that, I wanted to teach scuba diving. I wanted to do that. That was one of the things. So in uh, 89, I began planning and I started taking dive courses and became a dive master, then an instructor, then a staff instructor, then a master scuba diver trainer, then a master instructor. And then I started doing all the Paddy instructional videos. Mm. And then we bought the house in St. Martin in 97. And Chris and I sat down and said, well, when do we move in? Because it was rented. We had a sitting renter, and we gave her three years' notice and said, Y2K, that's perfect. When Y2K comes, we'll leave. And so in February of 2000, I went into um, Trip Reeb's office, and I said I slid the brochure of the house because at times it had been rented out before it had a long-term tenant. And I said, hey, Trip, I need to show you this. And he said, oh, that's nice. He said, is, is that going to be your next vacation? I said, no, I'm moving there. And he goes, you're moving there? And I said, I have the house, and I bought a dive shop, and I'm moving to St. Martin. He said, so you're leaving K-Rock? And I said, yeah. And he goes, hold on. <laughs> and he ran out, and he got Kevin, and Kevin came in. And I had to tell Kevin, and Kevin said, have you told anyone about this? Or spoken about it on the air and I said no now prior to this I told Krista that I was gonna get the moment I told them they were gonna tell you tell me love you Richard unplug your headphones goodbye yeah goodbye the radios that way yeah. yeah and so they said when are you moving and I said at the beginning of May I wanted to give you two months notice and Kevin said okay well don't say anything about this on the air I want to position it correctly so let me talk to Kevin and Bean and uh, let's see what we can come up with so I said, so I'm, I'm going back on the air on Monday? And Kevin looks at me and said, don't you have a shift tomorrow? Because, you know, this every other Saturday. Right. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, hopefully you're on tomorrow. <laughs> so I remember driving home and Krista was there and she had my warm tea waiting for me. And she, mm. you okay, honey? I said, yeah. She goes, so um, how did everything go? And I said, they want me to work out my notice. She said, what? I said, I'm going to be working till April 28th. She said, but we're leaving on May 3rd. I said, well, you've got to do all the packing then. <laughs> so we had to sell the house and everything in that wow. period of time. And but then you it, came back here? Came back? Yeah, I, I kind of got – well, I tell everyone I got lured back, and that is not the truth. I, I tell everyone at gigs, they said, why did you come back? You got island crazy, you know, island fever. And I said, no, I didn't. We never got bored with the island. We loved it, which is why I get so upset thinking about what my friends and what the people of the Caribbean are going through right now because of Hurricane Irma. What happened is my mom died. Uh. And my mother died right after Krista's mother died. Mm-hmm. And Krista's mother died at the age of 47. Oof. Three, three days before our wedding. Oh, my God. I know. It was talk about the phrase, the best of times, the worst of times. And then um, when mum died, I was over here visiting Krista's dad with Krista because we were spending a lot of time with him. And I was a dentist in Burbank, not far from here, actually, on on Riverside. And he'd just taken out a huge filling when the phone rang and the nurse interrupted him. And I knew it had to be bad. And it was that same feeling I had with dad. And it was Krista. 
and she said, I just heard from your brother, your mother's in heart failure. She'd had a heart valve attached and it detached. Oh, Only boy. 10% was attached and good. the heart was enlarged and she was 84 years old. They couldn't go in and reattach it because it was too dangerous. Mm. She would have died on the table and in England with part of the NHS, they have kind of a ratio, you know, if you, number of patients you lose works against you. And they said it, the, the risk reward factor was not high enough and that she would probably be dead within 24 hours because Jeez. she'd collapsed. We're starting to do the same thing here. Yeah. So, stupid data. So I, 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 I raced over to England um, and drove down to Torbay Hospital and ran into the cardiac ward. And it was it was at night, and I knew the ward well because I'd done radio, uh, hospital radio there. And I raced through the ward, and I, I saw this nurse, and I said, "Mary Shepherd, Mary Shepherd, do you know where Mary Shepherd is?" You know, I was think, I praying she was still alive because it's about thirty hours now. And uh, I hear this little voice go, "I'm over here, my love." And Mum's sitting up having a cup of tea, and she goes, "Oh, you look out of breath. Sit down and relax." Oh my god! And she held on for six weeks, mm. and uh, the so. Um, when she died, she died in my arms. I was lying on the bed with her, and she took her last breath in my arms. And then that night, Krista had flown over, and she was with me the whole time. She's an incredible wife. And I said to Krista, I said, we have to do it again. And she said, what? I said, we have to go back and do everything over again. Because I, I started over again when I came to America. I'd left Europe, and then we started over again in St. Martin. And I've always enjoyed a challenge. I've always embraced doing something new. And she said, but why? And I said, because your family is there. I said, you know, my family's all gone now. They're all gone. Mm. And I said, but your family's in LA. And I said, life's too short. I said, we've done my dream. You know, we've done the diving. We've run the dive shop. We've, we, you know, we, we're the best dive shop in St. Martin. We've got all the cruise contracts. You know, we've got Disney, we've got Carnival, we've got Royal Norwegian. Everyone comes to us. Our friends, Bobby and Whitney, can take it over. Let's go back to L.A. And she goes, but what are you going to do? You know, she's, you've got no job. We've got no house. We sold everything. I said, I don't know. I said, but I said, that is kind of exciting. I said, we, let's go back and let's spend some time with your family and let's see what we can do and let's see what happens. We can, we'll do it all again. I said, as long as... We've got each other. I don't, I'm not scared. You know, we didn't have the, the burden, and I don't mean it as a bad way, you know, because people love their kids, but we didn't have that worry yeah. of what are we going to do to the kids. Yeah, it's a whole different layer. You know, if we have to live in a small apartment for a little while and, and get things going. I, I'm having been to some of your parties and stuff, I, you have an amazing network of friends. Did that happen fast? That happened really fast, yeah. Is that, I mean, is that what really helped you propel you in your new well, life here? Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that happened when I got back is that um, I sold a show to E! Entertainment Television. I pitched because reality was happening yeah, big. Yeah, you know, yeah. This was 2003. And everyone had said after the second season of Survivor, it was going to go away. And then suddenly it got bigger and bigger and Biggest Loser comes along and every other show comes along. And, uh, you know, Celebrity Rehab comes along, you know. <laughs> and it's – so reality was a huge thing. So yeah. I pitched and sold uh, a series to E!, which didn't go past pilot, but I still got paid for it. But I got noticed by VH1 and they approached me and asked me to produce a series that they've been trying to get going for a year and that was Bands Reunited, where oh, we put right. 80s groups back together. Right, right, right. And so I said, okay, that would be that would be awesome. And within about a week of me doing that, and it was in the papers that they'd signed me to do that, I get this phone call from New York from a guy called Steve Bladder. And he said, hey, I'm with a satellite radio system. I'm like, well, what the hell satellite radio? And he said, well, we just started up. We've got 234,000 subscribers. And uh, would you uh, work for us? And uh, I said, well, I can't move to New York. He said, no, we'll do a little home studio for you. Oh, my God. And so Sirius started up. And about five days later, when I was at Circuit City, which has gone away, um, picking up some headphones. In fact, the same ones that you're wearing. They're still still my industry standard. Crazy. Uh, I get this phone call from John Ivey and from Clear Channel. And he said, I hear you're back in town. Would you like to do a show on Clear Channel? Because Ryan Seacrest is leaving Star 98.7 and going to Kiss FM to replace Rick Dees. And we need someone with a name to replace Ryan. Would you step in? And it was it was weird. Within 
four months, I was back. Wow. And uh, I've always believed if you put yourself out there and you do it for the right reasons, that nature kind of picks up on that and, and helps you with it. Because this is the spiritual part of me. Well, there's a big spiritual part of you as I'm experiencing, yeah. even yeah. just not the part about your dad, but your yeah. entire story. But go yeah. ahead. I, I believe that what you dream or what you want for the right reasons. What does that mean? I don't think you, you if you, if you want something for the wrong reasons if you want it just for money mm. if you're out for money or you you want to have sex with that girl and you don't care about that girl um Got it. you it, it's good. not going to happen yeah but if you want something for the right reasons because you really believe that you can do something with it and it would be good for you and it would be good for the people that are working with you and the people that you can affect I honestly believe it will come true I think if you if you dream correctly, it will come true. And sometimes I joke, I didn't dream big enough. You know, I look at Jimmy and I go, wow, what a fantastic, I mean, I mean I, that, that is the job yeah. I would love. Yeah. But in all honesty, I wouldn't do it as good as Jimmy. And it's not false me- modesty. I love Jimmy He's Kimmel. He's doing a great job. He yeah. is one of, yeah. he is great. I, I emailed him about three weeks ago after a monologue and uh, we've been in touch. I mean, Jimmy and I are in touch. And I emailed him and I said, Jimmy, just want to let you know how proud I am of you, not just because of your talent, but because of your fearlessness and your courage. I said, man, to know that I've worked with you, it makes me proud. He emailed me back within 40 minutes. I mean, what a guy. That's him. It's, That's it's him. amazing. So I made this list. And in fact, at one point, I was going to call the book The List. I made this list when I was 10. And everything on the list I'd done apart from one. And the one thing I hadn't done on the the list was write a book. Mm. And that was, you know, one of the... One of the happy things I was able to check off at the end on that little list. World in my eyes is that book. You can get it at richardbladebook.com. You can follow Richard, richardblade.com or follow him at at richardblade. Did you have have any regrets? Do I have any regrets? (sighs) This is going to sound so shallow. My, the, the regret I would always say, I have two. One is not shallow. One I would always say to Krista the only real big regret I have is selling our house in St. Martin mm. because I didn't know if we'd have anything when we came back. We needed the money. I didn't know if I'd be working again or if I'd have to get a job in Starbucks or whatever. So we sold that house and we loved it and we loved the island mm. and we loved St. Martin. I say shallow because now I'm kind of glad I sold yeah, it because, it. yeah, the deck would have gone, the roof would have gone Oof. and goodness knows what else would have happened. Yeah. So that is my shallow regret so it's not a big one it's okay. it's not a big big regret the other regret is the way that my relationship with terry nunn finished hmm. because the book is about th- also about three great loves a love i had at college with a girl called carolyn wilson uh the love i had with terry nunn of berlin and the love i have with krista my three i've been i'm a very lucky man i've been in love with three incredible women who've loved me and what I, the way that Terry and I broke up and what I did to her was unforgivable. We didn't yeah. speak for more than seven years. Mm. And now we're the best of friends. Oh, that's good. We text each other all the time. Yeah. But it took a long, long time for that to, to turn around. Has she read the book? No. Uh, I've asked her if she wants to read the book. She's read passages from the book. That was enough. And she's, yeah, she, she wrote just like you did. She wrote a nice little uh, blurb about it. But uh, she's a little scared because she knows that I'm going to write the truth. And uh, it was it was 99.900% my fault, the breakup. She was blameless. But an incredible woman. And, and I'm so excited for her that she's still out there as berlin and still performing and still doing well when you hear the story can you isn't it exciting to think about the documentary when it comes out and all that you really get to 
to hear from all the people that were involved in all these these historical moments. I love moments. it, and I feel like you guys just started scratching the surface. I know oh, that's, that's absolutely true. We yeah. can go down a thousand tributaries. We really yeah. couldn't yeah. agree more. And yeah. the, I have to say, the title I'm very proud of because the title, title "World in My Eyes," "World in My Eyes," is not my words. They're Martin Gore's words from Depeche Mode. It's a song from my all-time favorite album outside of the Beatles. I love the Beatles, and that's "Violator." And uh, the more I wrote this book and the publisher and I, uh, it's going to be in Barnes and Noble and Amazon and books on tape and everything like that but the publisher kept you know should we call it the list should we call it the three loves should we call it the the DJ uh, the wheels of steel and I kept coming back to world in my eyes because the lyrics for world in my eyes from Violator say let me take you on a trip around the world and back and you won't have to move you just sit there I'll take you to the highest mountains. I'll take you to the depths of the deep blue sea. And all of that is in the book. You know, we go to Australia on tour with Spandau Ballet. You know, we go on the road with Duran Duran in in Great Britain and across Europe. And then there's all my my travels in the clubs through Scandinavia and Germany and Spain and Greece and Italy. And I really wanted to take the – I keep wanting to say listeners, but the the readers because – I wanted to take the them on, on the adventure, yeah. you know, because it, to me it was a, an adventure and continues to be one. And, and I wrote to Martin Gore and I said, Martin, I know it's not a copyrighted phrase, but I will not use world in my eyes without your permission because I'm A, a fan, B, I'm a friend, and C, you guys are in three of the chapters. <laughs> and uh, he wrote back to me the next morning and said, quote, I would be thrilled for you to use my song title. Nice. And I was like, wow. Okay. So it immediately became world in my eyes. Richard, congratulations. Really. I, I so excited for you. And I just can't wait to see how people react to it and what they take from it. And uh, just so pleased. Well, I'm just thrilled to have known you over the years and I'm so proud of your success and, you well, and your integrity and the way you are as a family man, I remember running into you outside the Cheesecake Factory on Colorado Pasadena. with Susan and the triplets <laughs> in that stroller. Oh I mean, and even then I was like, that's true. I mean, I just love this man. You've always, always been so great. And when I was dating a stripper at one time and cheating on her, she wanted me to have an AIDS test. Who was the person I went to? Drew was the guy who handled my junk. So, I mean... I, We've had an intimate relationship yeah, over many, many years. I, here, I, seriously, man, <laughs> congratulations to you, and thank you. I'm honored to be on your Thanks, podcast. Buddy. Thank you so much, Thank man. you, really. man. And everybody Thanks. else, hope you enjoy the book. RichardBladeBook.com is where you get it, and we'll see you next time. For Colin Times and Topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. What's going on, man? Hi, guy. Yeah. Yeah, the team. Loveline, man. You guys remember us from back in the day? Well, we're doing a pod, and we're doing it every day. And we've been doing it for a while. And if you, if I hear one more time people say, God, I loved you and Adam together on Loveline. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're doing a podcast. Will you please just join us at the Adam and Dr. Drew Show, please? AdamandDrewShow.com. It's a great show. Come on now. Only on Podcast One. That's us. Adam and Dr. Drew Show. Just like the old days. Doctor's orders. Oh, (laughs) Oh, man, you're funny. Yep. All right. Let's go save some babies. Let's do it.